Welcome to Cooking the Books with me, Jilly Smith, the podcast for foodie book lovers where food is the story. And it's sponsored for the whole of May by City Books, Brighton Hove's largest and liveliest independent bookshop. This week I'm talking food philosophy with novelist and essayist Priya Basil, whose book, Be My Guest, was shortlisted for this year's Fortnum and Mason Best Food Book Award and is an evocative exploration of food, race and memory. I caught up with her remotely in her home in Berlin to talk about her conflicting notions of hosting, controlling, friendship and belonging and suggested that food for her is so much more than just a set of ingredients. Definitely, and that's partly because of the family that I come from, a family for whom uh, food is a kind of obsession, for whom hosting is a sort of uh, completely over-the-top activity. Um, everything is exaggerated. Uh, too much is cooked. Um, my grandmother, for example, puts pressure on people to eat more than they want and um, and really relies on your taking that up in order to feel affirmed in her cooking. And so sort of growing up in this kind of context, I guess food always played a very big role in my imagination. And then moving a lot between places um, being uh, confronted with different kinds of flavors and cultures of eating and sharing, um, that all came together in this book in a way that I didn't really expect, um, but which sort of allowed me to unite different parts of my life through food um, in in a in actually a very kind of beautiful way because I think food is a, a sort of one universal thing that we all do every day in some shape or form. We we need it. Uh, in order to go on. And so in that sense, the plate and what's on it, um, whatever, you know, however, however fortunate or not we are, um, that is one thing I think that we all have to do to keep living. Yeah, it, it unifies us. And we'll, we'll talk a lot more about that later. But let's just unpack some of the stuff that you just talked about there. You are a very peripatetic person. You personally have moved from, well, you were born in London, and then your family went That's to it. live in Kenya, uh, but they are Indian family. You are a Sikh family living in Kenya, and now you live in Berlin. So although this book isn't a memoir as such, it talks a lot about who you are through those moves uh, and through through the food that kept that sense of belonging, that sense of affirmation, who you are as a person, but also where you come from in your family. Tell us about, first of all, moving to growing up in Kenya. Yeah, well, my my parents themselves were born in Kenya. So um, after the um, during the British Empire, many Indians went to East Africa to work in the British administration. And both my grandparents were amongst those who did. And so for my parents, after I was born in the UK, going back was really going home. And uh, and at that time, Kenya was a very divided society, racially divided. There was no official segregation policy, but you, you really felt that um, uh, black Kenyans, the Indian community and um, the white community lived very separately. There was no interaction. But within our Indian community, uh, and it was a very sort of middle class milieu that my family was in, um, it was quite diverse in the sense that people came from different faith backgrounds. Um, our closest friends were Muslims. Um, as you mentioned, we were Sikh, Hindus. And although we were not practicing Sikhs as such, I mean, my, I can't say my parents are especially sort of religiously observant. It's interesting how there are certain kind of rituals that one carries on and that become kind of markers of identity. And one of the ones that was very... Um, 
yeah, influential for me growing up was this ritual of going to the Sikh temple, the Gurdwara. The meal in the Gurdwara, in the Sikh temple, is is open to anyone. Anyone can come in and, and partake of it, even if you're not of the faith. And experiencing there, my first sort of sense of something um, that I only gave, found the words for later, but a kind of unconditional hospitality. Yes, and you do talk about that. That's your second food moment. Before we go into that, let's just talk about your first food moment, because that's really the basis of it. It is your mumjis, your grandmother's caddy. Actually, my mother's. I, I mean, it's very easy that you've uh, sort of mixed them up because she is such a force that she kind of, you know, overtakes everything. She feels and, like it. <laughs> and no doubt she's kind of, you know, uh, a ghost behind the cuddy. But the cuddy story is really um, uh, the, the dish that I love the most that my mother makes. And um, I've loved it all my life. And uh, what my mother did when I moved away was that she started to prepare the base of it, the tarka, as we call it um, in Punjabi and Hindi. And um, and she would freeze that for me so that I could take away these pre-made portions and just add the extra ingredients. So the um, yogurt, uh, chickpea flour and fresh coriander and then have this meal that tasted just like home that felt like my mother was there with me. Um, nourishing me. And, um, and so it was really amazing for me how, you know, ferrying this Taraka in aeroplanes from London to Berlin was possible. And that it was possible to recreate the sense of being with somebody and reconnecting to the past and to feel my mum's hospitality and care from so many thousands of miles away. Do you want to read it? It's 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 actually on page two, and it has a wonderful sense of you as a petulant child. Mm -mm. That's not enough. I stare into the brimming pot of cuddy, a creamy curry made with gram flour and yogurt. My mother ignores me, goes on stirring the turmeric-tinged sauce. I could eat all that on my own for breakfast. I'm aghast at the prospect of running short of one of my favourite dishes in the world. Give me a ladleful of this atop a mound of freshly boiled rice and I will take it whatever the hour over whatever else is on offer. There have been times when I've eaten cuddy at every meal for days on end. Why on earth has my mother made so little? Eyes bigger than stomach, she sighs. Her words are the older censure of my eating life the most frequent and the most unheeded. They have little to do with the size of my body, which is slender, and everything to do with the size of my desire, which is vast, unwieldy, panoptic. Mum plunges the wooden spoon deep into the pot for a last stir. The paddle emerges, coated with translucent slivers of onion, specks of tomato, a scattering of coriander leaves. My mouth waters, all reason drowns. I start scheming strategies to control how much might be eaten by our imminent guests. We have to use the small bowls to serve, and mum shouldn't insist on extra helpings. And, whatever happens, she can't offer anybody a portion to take home. Stop being so silly, mum says. There's plenty here, and anyhow, I can always make more for you. But it doesn't matter how much she cooks. She can never make enough. Not for me. <laughs> Why was it particularly the cuddy? That's a very good question. It's a very unusual taste, I have to say. And in, in my family, nobody else is such a fan of it. 
Um, so, and, and very often, um, in, in Indian families, they, it's a dish that you make when the yogurt has, is almost gone off and, you know, you don't know what else to do with it. Um, but for some reason, this sort of slightly sour, um, sort of very intensely spicy and oniony dish has really appealed to me. And, um, and nobody else, I mean, there are many versions of it. I've tasted other mums, you know, doing it for their families and I, and I, I don't like any of them. Um, there's something about my mum's version that is just, yeah, my favorite. And so, and it continues to be, um, I have to say that I, I decided at the end of, um, towards the end of last year to try and eat more vegan. And then my mum said, but how can you? You've announced in this book that this is your favorite dish in the world. You can't change your mind now. But then she took on the challenge of making a vegan version. And I must say, I almost like it better. I definitely like it equally. And so I was really grateful to her that she sort of rose to this challenge and changed and invented a new version. And what does she use instead of yogurt? A coconut milk. And you leave out the chickpea flour because you, you, you don't need that to thicken it in the same way. Um, and it's complete, it is completely different. You can't compare. It's, it's, it's a different dish, but it's very nice. And as long as your mother makes it then that's all yes, right. Yes, exactly. Yeah. As long as I keep getting my batches of tharka and I can adapt as I wish, um, I couldn't be happier. I mean, it's interesting, isn't it? Food obviously travels and you say that you take it all over the world, wherever you go, it is a taste of your mother. But you did leave and there's a lot of rupture in your life. And again, this isn't a memoir as such. It's a it's it's more like a philosophical rumination on hospitality and and generosity, isn't it? But at the heart of it, it is about being fed and being nourished as a child and, 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 and food being set up as a very important part of your life. How was it because perhaps it was so strong in your life that you felt able to, to move around so much as you did and make your home in a completely different part of the world? That's a very interesting way of putting it. And if that is the case, I think it wasn't conscious. But I said at the beginning that I couldn't have written this book, you know, or I wouldn't have written it having not come from this particular family. But I think another thing which also holds equally true is that I couldn't have written this book if I hadn't moved and particularly hadn't moved to Germany and had this experience of... um thinking about uh, home and belonging and Europe and um, the UK and the EU in completely different terms. And also feeling the sense of what it is to be able to move freely. Um, I, I mean, I was always very lucky and very privileged that um, holding a British passport, which is a kind of unearned privilege in a way. I mean, you, you might say that because of colonialism, my grandparents, you know, they, they have a diff, they, 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 they had a different kind of claim on this right. But I just was born into it. And, um, and this meant that I could travel freely and live and work anywhere in the EU. And this was so astonishing to me that I didn't need to ask anybody's permission. I didn't need to announce anywhere that I was doing this. Um, it's really still a magical thing for me that we managed this. And particularly at this moment now with all the borders closed and, you know, the sense of returning to a very kind of national way of being and very confined, feeling confined in that, even if it's necessary. Um, what we managed in Europe with the open borders um, seems all the more kind of precious to me. And I hope that we will be able to return to some semblance of that. But that that also very much played a role in my thinking and writing, um, because I suppose that's just another dimension of generosity and of hospitality. And what's what, what, well, food is one aspect of it, the kind of social and political aspects 
um, are equally valid. And I think they influence each other. I mean, of course, the reason also that we have all these foods and we enjoy this incredible variety is because people moved and were able to move and bring their cuisines and cultures and share them with each other. And look at London as a perfect example of that, you know, not so long ago. When I was young and working in London for the first time, you couldn't get anything interesting to to eat apart from maybe a, a little Portuguese cafe or an interesting little Italian or, or Greek. But now, obviously, you know, the immigration has brought this fantastic diversity that has made this extraordinarily vibrant capital, as it has done in Berlin. I mean, what extraordinary food you can have there. Yes, and this is also a very recent development. I mean, even more recent than in London, which for quite a while, for some decades now, has been a fantastic eating city. Whereas I remember in Berlin 10 years ago, not being able to get something like tamari, um, you know, I would bring things like that from London. And, uh, and now, as you say, um, it's really transformed. And especially in the last two, three years, even more so because of all the refugees that arrived. Um, from um, mainly from Syria, but also from from other countries, and and you really see this then reflected in the food culture with more um, Syrian restaurants opening. And before that, Berlin had a big Vietnamese community because of the Eastern European communist connection, and so there's very strong Vietnamese cuisine. And 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 then of course there's the big Turkish community here, the biggest outside of Turkey. So it's it's really it's really fascinating how all these different communities and movements then. Really really influence the food landscape, the foodscape of a place. Absolutely. And extraordinary that actually it's the new world that led that movement. America was, of course, the first great food place because everybody came with their cucina povere uh, to, to make them feel at home, as did Australia. You know, the, the ways of immigration from the Greeks to the Italian to the Vietnamese boat people created arguably one of the best cuisines in, in the world. The book is called Be My Guest. It's about generosity. It's about welcoming people in and you talk about the Syrian refugees and you talk about refugees in general and you were writing at the time of Brexit it's a really thorny issue isn't it it's about who belongs and who doesn't and you were just talking then a moment ago about who has the right to live where and at one point you talk about the exemplary citizens that you have to be in order to to be given the right to live in a certain place. Exemplary citizen, what does that mean to you now, having explored so much as, as you have in the book? What does it mean to be an exemplary citizen? Well, what was really intriguing for me is that um, simply having this um, policy of freedom of movement and millions of people taking advantage of this moving through Europe, going to live and work in other countries, that in this act of freedom, of being able to do this, and living this reality of open borders and being part of a different kind of community and understanding yourself as part of a, a project of unity, an imperfect one in many ways, but nevertheless a kind of striving towards a different way of thinking, conceiving of ourselves in the world, that that, that is, it is in this act that those who have done this have become exemplary citizens of a sort. Um, and I, I don't, I mean, it, it sounds like some sort of, you know, ideal role model that you might want to achieve. But for me, it's not that at all. It's really just 
all those of us who've been fortunate enough to um, experience the European in a way and to have internalized this idea of ourselves as belonging in a sphere greater than the national one and somehow feeling responsible um, for this idea of ourselves um, as connected and um, yeah, responsible for one another outside of our national boundaries. And although you say you're not religious... There's a lot of religion underpinning it. And let's go back to your second food moment the, at the Gudawara, which does influence enormously your work with the refugees. You know, what is your relation to being a Sikh? Well, I'm actually an atheist now. And so um, my relationship to Sikhism is one of sort of curiosity and having a certain attachment to certain Mm, rituals that have been part of my family's tradition um, and being ready to to take part in those, but also having a sort of critical distance from them. And one thing, though, that has been hugely influential is this idea of the langar, which is the communal kitchen in a Sikh temple at Gurdwara. And volunteers come together to cook the meal, and it's an open invitation. Anybody, whether they're part of the congregation or not, can come and eat there. And um, I first, my grandfather first told me about this when I was a child and I thought it was so astonishing because, as I mentioned, Kenya was so segregated when I was growing up that I couldn't believe that all different kinds of people could come together and eat. And I also wondered, but if they can, how come they don't? Because at our temple, there were only ever other Indian Sikhs. Um, and so th- this possibility of openness and next to it, the reality of sameness um, they sort of stayed with me as a strange kind of riddle. And as I was writing this book, it sort of struck me that there's a sort of parallel with the European Union, which also has these ideals of openness and um, equal opportunity and rights for all. And yet, as we know, within that, there are all kinds of qualifications and restrictions and exceptions and exclusions. Um, and so, yeah, and and then these these things were united for me by the thinking of the French philosopher Jacques Derrida, who I also talk about in the book, and his idea of unconditional hospitality, which he immediately acknowledges is impossible. And yet he nevertheless says that um, the he, he nevertheless posits it as um, as a kind of ideal to which to strive for which to strive to. And on the one hand, of course, it seems impossible that, you know, you can be unconditionally open to anything. And on the other hand, I think that we manage it in small ways in our daily lives all the time. I and mean, when we think of love and our relationships and how we manage to forgive things that we never thought we would and to do things which we would never have thought ourselves capable of, um, I mean, that is a, we manage that unconditionality in love. And I'm really interested in how we can manage it in other instances, even if only briefly. And I feel completely challenged and not up to the task at all. But I also find it really important to have such ideas in our, dis- in our discourse and in our imaginations at a time when, you know, the, the, the instinct to kind of narrow down and, and, and exclude and sort of think of ourselves in very straight-jacketed terms is so prevalent in politics. Well, I mean, we're, we're living it right now. Who would have believed? I mean, I'm a real advocate for stopping 
traveling actually stopping flying so much for for climate change and uh you know i read a wonderful meme on on facebook the other day where the world says but how can we all stop flying how can we all stop moving how can we all start working at home and mother nature says hold my beer (laughs) i'll show you (laughs) yeah but look at how quickly it can happen it's a it's that suspension of disbelief isn't it is that it is that belief in the absolute improbable and that we have the power to do it it's it's an yeah. extraordinary I mean, moment in history. You, you're you're absolutely right. I think for all the t- challenges and difficulties and horrors of this moment, it has opened up this little chink for us, and we know now what can be done uh, where there is the will and the necessity. And none of us, whatever whatever we revert to, will never forget this, and we'll be able to refer back to it and say, "But then, you know, we did this and this and this." And and that that is a kind of amazing gift to to see. How, what can be mobilised at all levels. Let's go back to the good one. We've just got to read that. Yes. So I'm going to read a little section um, which describes the Parshad, because um, in this book, everything comes back to food somehow or other. And the Prashad is a kind of blessing that you get when you visit the Gudwara after the prayers. And it was really my favourite thing about going. I used to just wait for this moment. I loved the moment when a warm golden clump imprinted with the service fingers was dropped into my waiting palms. It was always the same, sublimely sweet and superbly comforting. That was religion for me, a mound of heaven in my hand, a taste at once chaste and decadent. I devour it and then, fingers slick with residues of fat, I would turn to my mum, who, having taken a bite of her portion, would give the rest to me with the injunction, make sure you leave space for lunch. I nodded, always convinced that my stomach had plenty of room. There was not enough prashad in the universe to satisfy me. Not sated even after eating mum's share, my eyes would follow the sevadar, the server, waiting for him to finish his round. Then I'd run up and ask for another helping. There were usually a couple of other kids trailing the Sevadar, the greedy ones, Sybarites in the making, who knew that here you could ask for more and not be told no. And it's a very powerful uh, image that has been taken. I've seen it in the jungle in Calais. I've seen it in uh, refugee kitchens here in Brighton um, when 2015 brought so many different people from all over the world, particularly from Syria, um, to to all our cities. And it is it is exactly that seeing children running around actually being given food that they knew they could come back to. It's a very important image. It leads to your third food moment as well. I think that one of the, um, the the things about hospitality is this idea of there being more than you need, uh, a kind of indulgence or excess is related to it. And that's a sort of, um, it's a tricky thing because um, on the one hand, you know, talking about things like climate change and um the, the many different demands on our resources. There, there is a call for kind of modesty and reasonableness. And at the same time, the very idea of hospitality is really linked to, to, to giving more than you can give and getting more than you need. And so h- how we navigate this contradiction um, is, is a really interesting one and one that I haven't yet found uh, a, a kind of ideal way through. But one experience um, which really 
touched me very deeply um, was in 2016, soon after um, the year when I think almost 800,000 refugees, or just over 800,000 refugees came to Berlin. And there were many initiatives, grassroots initiatives that started here to try and um, connect with all these newcomers, as as people called them, rather than refugees. And, um, and it was n- kind of no surprise to me that a majority of these had to do with food and eating and cooking together. And I happened to go to one of these gatherings. A friend of mine who was working with an initiative invited me. And in the kitchen, you had um, newly arrived refugees and long-term residents uh, preparing together, and um, in the kind of big hall, you had people from all over sitting together. And very often, they didn't even have a language in common. And there weren't enough translators to facilitate the, the talking. And, um, and yet, when the food arrived, there was this sense of being able to connect over enjoying something together, over somebody you know, pointing to, oh, yeah, that's from my you know, that's from my homeland, that dish. And so I'm able to give you a part of myself through this. And and so even in this time of deprivation, when these people had lost so much, they didn't know how they would able to would be able to go on. Um, this kind of abundance of food and um, kind of communality through eating, you felt that there was a promise in that. Um, and and so it, it was a very hopeful moment in the midst of, you know, a, kind of a lot of angst about what, what happens next. Do you want to read from page 36 in the kitchen, A Dozen Odd Helpers? In the kitchen, a dozen odd helpers were preparing a feast, collaborating through hand gestures and intuition to create specialities from Kerala, Kurdistan, Kabul. In the back rooms, musicians from all over were improvising, practicing what they would soon play to entertain everyone. Children ran shouting into and out of the garden. I had no idea what they were saying, but their squeals were perfectly legible. Delight and despair sound the same everywhere. Teenage boys leant with practiced casualness against the walls of the corridor, watching the proceedings with seeming indifference. Others wove through the tightly packed tables in the dining hall with bottles of juice and soda, topping up glasses and flashing awkward smiles at the thanks that came in different tones and hues. When the food was ready, the fragmented crowd of hundreds suddenly cohered, and I was briefly part of that convergence. Words didn't matter. In sharing a meal, everyone communicated through the vocabulary of victuals. They discovered bits of each other through the dictionary of dishes. They learned a new lexicon of largesse and loss, longing and laughter that could pave the way for the exchanges of the future. It leads us beautifully into your final food moment. Um, It's about the cookbook gift from your neighbours in your building. And I'm terribly jealous of this. It's an example of xenia, which you talk about, the Greek word, which means hospitality, which is what you're exploring in your book. Tell us about that cookbook. Yeah, so I live in a very special sort of um, block where um, I, we actually build this built this whole apartment block with the people who we live with. It's a special concept, concept in Germany called Baugemeinschaft, community building. And you don't have a developer, so, you know, the costs are all much lower. So we, we built, it took three years to build, and we've now lived together here for 12 years. And it's like a little village and it's a very special thing. It was the first, it was one of the things that helped me start to feel at home in Germany and have another sense of family. 
And um, a couple of years ago, uh, for my 40th birthday, they all prepared this best recipes um, of our house, things that I'd eaten and loved at their places and, you know, kind of wanted to recreate. And, and they were all done individually, illustrated or with drawings and handwriting. So every recipe has a very kind of, you know, personal touch. And it's just, it's such a beautiful book to look at, but also just... It, it, it's so touching as an idea that they did all this and also the photos of each family, you know, uh, next to the re- next to the recipes. And and as I kind of, of course, I've tried to recreate the recipes and sometimes they get very close, but, you know, sometimes not so close. And and what really struck me as I as I tried to cook some of those was that there isn't one ingredient which, you know, is not it doesn't matter how closely you follow a recipe and you know, the, the, the whole, the ingredient, which we, which I call hospitality, which is the act of somebody else making something for you, inviting you to have it. Um, that's sort of irreplaceable. And that's kind of, I think what gives us that, that kind of frisson when we share a meal with others and we eat something we've never had before. Um, and so much of what, of my cooking is really an effort to recreate that, and and very often I might get the taste quite close, but there is really that that moment is irretrievable in a certain sense. And um, coming back to the idea of senia, uh, the, the Greek idea of hospitality, of course, the, the core of that was that it was extended not just to those you know and love, but to strangers, because um, they, the, the Greeks always thought that the stranger might be God. And so, and I think that this idea is echoed in many different religious traditions. Um, and so, so I, I thought that was, that's such a powerful idea that you never know who it is you're dealing with. And therefore, you know, to, to be kind of respectful and decent and generous seems to be the best position to go from where possible. Um, and that is hugely challenging. I mean, it's, it's kind of, yeah, Derrida would say impossible to have that attitude towards everyone. Um, and so I think with food and with recipes, there's a possibility for exchange where the stakes are not so high always. And yet there's nevertheless um, a possibility to give and to share and to maybe step over certain um, yeah, barriers of, of uh, you know, what, what we think we'll like or, you know, what we think we should or shouldn't have. And maybe now is a particularly interesting time to explore what that means when we have to be physically distant from each other, to see what giving naturally comes out of this this sort of enforced isolation. And, you know, at the moment, it's all about technology and virtual Mm. parties and Mm. kind of pretending to be together when we can't be together. But I wonder how food will play out. How do you think we can still be each other's guests in a time of isolation? I think there are many ways, and I think that the, the 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 things that allow us to be a bit tactile are probably going to be the ones that remain with us mo- most um, because of this physical distancing necessity. And uh, I send um, cakes to my gra- my my mother in law every week. I bake and post them to her. Um, she's in Germany, so I know they'll get there in time without arriving rotten. Um, but it's a way of touching her and being with her, even though you know we can't see her. And so I think people will be very inventive in the ways that they choose to indulge each other, even at this moment of a lot of deprivation. 
Hence the increase of interest in baking, which has gone absolutely extraordinary. And the lack of flour in the shops. I know. Extraordinary. Priya Basil, thank you so much. It's a wonderful read. Thank you. It's my pleasure. Thank you for having me. Thanks for listening. If you like what you hear, please do rate and review the podcast and share where you can. And I'll see you next week. 